our devices are listening to us. Previous generations of audio technology transmitted, recorded or manipulated sound. Today are digital voice assistants, smart speakers and a growing range of related technologies are increasingly able to analyze and respond to it as well. Scientists and engineers increasingly refer to this as machine listening, though the first widespread use of the term was in computer music. Machine listening is much more than just a new scientific discipline or vein of technical innovation however. It is also an emergent field of knowledge power, of data extraction and colonialism, of capital accumulation, automation and control. It demands critical and artistic attention. Angie Abdullah talks to artist Sean Dockray, legal scholar James Parker, and curator Joel Stern about old ways, new, the indigenous-owned and led social enterprise she founded, based on Gadigal land in Redfern, Sydney. We discuss decolonizing the digital, country-centered design, a methodology which applies indigenous design principles to the development of technologies for places, spaces and experiences and how this contrasts with the placelessness on which so many machine learning slash listening systems are based. It would be great if you, if you could introduce yourself and, and give a, a bit of background to the work and, um, that you do and how you came to sort of think about advanced technologies through, through the prism of, of Indigenous culture and knowledge. Uh, so... Um... So I'm a Palawa woman. So my, uh, my come from the northeastern parts of Tasmania. Uh, also, um, we have a more recent history in the northwest of Tasmania. But um, uh, so we, I've been living here in Sydney for most of my adult life, but I go back home regularly. And I guess um, the reason why I became quite uh, intrigued with technology and and started to develop a much closer relationship with it and a working relationship is because as a filmmaker for many years I was uh, seeing how the way we tell stories so originally you know in the from the rectangle the you know, cinema to the square tv and then and then this thing the internet and con- and transmedia storytelling and and con you know our films and media becoming content really I guess started me thinking about how these um, these transitions in the way we tell stories and the shape and format of those stories was changing so radically quickly in the broader spectrum of time those transitions between cinema and broadcast media were actually quite pronounced you know they were they happened over a much longer period of time and so I was really interested in how digital technology, was creating these fundamental shifts in ways that were really um, exciting for me. Like I, I started seeing this realm of possibility. I remember the very first website that I that I came across was by this Russian artist years and years ago, and I was and there was there was no way in. You had to, it was almost like a galaxy which um, you had to find the right star constellation to enter into this wormhole. It was really great, and then you you know once you were in, it was it was this um, incredible world of discovery, and so you know of course it's a far cry to the way that um, web platforms are designed these days. But what I saw was this incredible opportunity to 
to imagine a different way that we could inhabit a, a liminal space, a liminal space to connect and to share um, stories and to share ideas and experiences. And so it was kind of during that time as well, like, you know, this, we're talking about like 20, 25 years ago, that um, the very first, I guess, tests around with around VR were also being explored and it wasn't called VR back then, but I, um, I do remember this, you know, coming from an arts background and uh, really interested in installation art and, and video art, how these, um, the different ways we shape story um, through these different platforms and devices could create an immersive experiences. And so that was really, you know, what, like that seeded this interest. And so then I was a uh, film director and writer and producer for many years. And I was always frustrated at how limited and contained it was, even though I love the craft and form, it was still compared to um, the experience of making of, of the capacity of immersive contemporary art. It was very limited, I thought. And so, so when, I started seeing these different ways that the, the film industry was shifting. I started thinking, well, we have to, I have to be in, to think more deeply about this and to, and to, because there's, there's an important shift happening and I need to be part of that. So yeah, that's really how the company came about. I mean, there was a whole bunch of other different projects that kind of led me on this journey. Um, one of which was a, a role that I was doing many years ago now in for the uh, National Centre for Indigenous Excellence, where I was leading this initiative called the Indigenous Digital Excellence Initiative. And through that role, I was um, fortunate enough to explore what the, were the, what I considered to be the most um, important new technologies that could be important for our communities. And so back then I was thinking about, well, I was really interested in robotics 3D printing and gamification. And so I developed these prototype workshops for, um, for young kids, for Aboriginal kids, to introduce these concepts of code and how we work with code in these different forms. And so the most successful out of those workshops was the robotics workshops, which then was the springboard for writing a research paper um, with Fibre Culture Journal. It was a special edition on robotics. And that um, was a peer-reviewed paper and it was really exploring, I mean, it was a sort of, I guess, a summary of what the prototype workshop was, but really it was, a, it was an opportunity to delve deeper into what are Indigenous knowledge systems and pattern thinking and how can those, how can we think about the possibilities of new emerging technologies beyond this access and participation agenda that most people kind of foist on Aboriginal people and think more about how our knowledge systems, our cultural knowledges and knowledge systems can inform the conception, design and development of technology. That's really what was the beginning of the company. Um, but that's really, you know, the, the, the company itself was founded by my uncle and I. So he passed away last year, but he was a total futurist. He was a lawman, initiated lawman and um, but a total futurist and not at all scared of technology, like just excited by the possibilities. Like, you know, he was always talking about quantum physics and their, and its relationship to Indigenous knowledges and how, how relevant it was and how, you know, he was, 
um, he was a poet, he was many things, but he had this incredible ability to see different possibilities and, and he was really the driving force uh, to guiding the formation of the company, really, yeah. I read his um, biography on the website and sounds like a remarkable man and, yeah, you're very lucky to, ha- to have had uh, a mentor like that. Um, I-, I wonder if you could... Um, talk a little bit about country-centred design and, and pattern thinking. Um, you, you already brought, brought up pattern thinking um, and in, in the last answer. And they're, they're two sort of concepts that, you know, inform the, the methodology really strongly. Um, ha, how do they kind of operate in your work and, and, and what are the imperatives? Mm. So pattern thinking, um, as I wrote about in that first research paper, um, is a way for us to under, to I guess um, articulate the interrelationship and interconnections of all things, and you know this is very relevant to I guess physics and quantum physics. So if you think about Australia as a a living organism, a mass, um, as the continent itself is uh, held together by this this network of songlines that intersect and interconnect and they all come from this one central place which is um, some say the womb some say the the navel and that's Uluru all those song lines come out from that place and they hold the the continent together in a sense what I describe it as like the central nervous system of country when you look at that as an entire network Within all of that there's a on a macro level there's a way of understanding the um, the didactic nature of the con- of the continent. So there's different purpose for those different the different um, areas of this very vast land. You know, it's dry and arid parts. We've got salt water, fresh water. We have the the top parts of the continent are uh, uh, rainforest and uh, act like the lungs of the continent, and the bottom Tasmania and Kangaroo Island like the feet. And then you have the womb in the middle, you know, so it, it's a living organism in itself in its own right. On a macro level, on a microscopic level, the those interrelationships and interconnections within that within the continent go down to, you know, the my relationship to from you know where I'm sitting right now to the to the harbour, to the mountains, and and otherwise, you know, like the, it's a way of um we're all interrelated and interconnected you know and so it's much more I guess obvious for I guess another way of understanding that is through the kinship system and it's much more obvious for mainland um the mainland continent because it's those connections are very still very much still connected whereas we've you know for in Tasmania we've been disconnected physically for 12,000 years but also disconnected through the decimation of our culture by just in the last 200 years. I mean, it is only the last 200 years and those connections are still there, but it is a reality. So so there's different ways of understanding pattern thinking and what I talked about in that paper was how the the two different, like I guess from... um, anthropological kind of perspective it's you know when you think about epistemologies and ontologies 
in some ways, you know, Indigenous ways of being, knowing, seeing, sensing, doing, it's all kind of the, it kind of collapses in on each other. It's the one thing when you're able to be in that, in that state of you know, connection. So there's pattern thinking and what I, what my uncle also used to talk about was pattern recognition. And that for me is the, it's like the mother tongue. It's for me, you know, I um, have grown up in a post-colonial society. So I'm, I'm learning those cultural practices again, but there, there are still a lot of people that, that still have that really strong, in a way, you know, like that the mother tongue. It's like the mother tongue of seeing pattern recognition is the, the sort of seeing, sensing, doing, it's like the mother tongue of that. So I, I guess um, all of that work and that quite deep sort of philosophical kind of framing really was foundational for for understanding that there was a there's a vast amount of knowledge that uh, that can support the conceptual design and development of technologies that have these principles of caring for country and caring for kin and and law the really kind of deep quite um, intricate law that that holds different communities together in different country together so what I saw was this this very obvious pathway that we could start working with that law working with those knowledges as our old people have done for thousands of years in to design different solutions to complex problems that's what's always happened and so why should we not be doing continuing to do that but with new emerging technologies yeah i think that um that relational thinking that's sort of at the heart of uh, the knowledge that you're describing is is clearly something that like science and technology kind of developed in the kind of euro european context is like catching up to in so many ways because that whole scientific project has been based in kind of separating and analyzing and looking at things in isolation and only now only recently i feel like scientists and engineers are sort of realizing oh in order to do anything about the complex problems we have to look at relationships between things you know so as if it's a big and novel discovery and so but this relational thinking as you're describing is just part of indigenous style culture and knowledge in order to be able to apply that to the kind of conception and design part of projects which you emphasized at the beginning and i just see it's so important to get in at the stage of conception and not sort of like cleaning up the problem or operating in a tiny little silo but actually being able to to conceive to to operate at that place where you have access to lots of different um parts of the problem has it been hard for you to make that kind of like um argument or like how do you go about being able to get to operate at that stage of conception do you know does that question make sense well so the company was has two arms we are a consultancy and we generate uh, we're a proprietary limited company and a social enterprise so the consultancy arm works within the built environment and the cultural sector delivering services in a lot of ways to working on large infrastructure projects uh, very much with you know the, the engineering and the engineering and technologies and how they reside within 
place. So place making, but also the, the shaping of those projects. So that's on one level. Those profits then support the research and development works. And so the whole formation of the Indigenous Protocols and Artificial Intelligence Working Group was funded by all of those projects, along with some other funders. But prior to that, the, the profits also supported a book we wrote the, called Decolonising the Digital, Technology as Cultural Practice. Prior to that, it was also the funding also supported the, um, the very first research paper, which also was kind of foundational to the establishment of the company. It was a little bit sort of chicken and egg in, in some ways. But I guess though that's important to just note because the... Yes, it is hard and it's not It's not like this has just happened overnight. We've spent years and years and years setting up the foundations to enable us the position that we're in right now where we're able to work with various different partners who have capacity to, to work, with us, work with us on that level. But it takes time and it takes trust and it takes deep working relationships that don't, it just doesn't happen overnight. So some of those projects, like for example, um, we were working with the Barangaroo Delivery Authority, which changed over to, it's now known as Infrastructure New South Wales. And what we were, one of the projects we've worked on, it was called the Big Sky and essentially what it is is a large-scale public art installation. But what it does is um, it's still in, um, it's kind of on hold at the moment because there's a whole heap of work being, still being signed off on underneath our site. <laughs> so our site, which is kind of above ground, um, there's a whole site called the Cutaway on the, the internal cavity of the of Barangaroo headland is a, is a cut, well, there's a massive cavity. So because of the planning, ours is on hold, but essentially it's kind of ready to go. What it is is it's an experiential way of understanding the um, interconnection and interrelationship of the sky and the constellations within the, the sky, the, the star stories, and its relationship with the song lines, on, so the, the whale dreaming, and the sea. So country is those three elements always. It's the water, so whether it's fresh water or salt water, it's the sky and it's the land. It's all those three things and we are part of it and it is part of us. So what we were able to do in that project was to design an, a site and an experience through uh, connecting with those, diff, those, core song, those core song lines um, so the whale dreaming, but then in the sky, the seven sisters. So the seven sisters spans from the west across the whole of the continent. And likewise, the whale dreaming spans from Tasmania all the way up past even this continent and on. Like there's lots of different indigenous mobs that have whale dreaming. So it's really those two really big, important song lines. And when I, and the, the star constellations are the mirror images of those song lines. So when you look up and see those different constellations in the sky, they are mirror images of what the, the where those song lines are and how they lie. So the, the site itself um, creates an opportunity for visitors to, to immerse into that, can, that uh, relationship of the whale and the stars through these different um, technologies embedded within the site. 
So the methodology we employ for all of our projects, country-centred design, what it does is it, it frames a process, there's sort of guiding principles. Um, it's not prescriptive, it's not um, because it can't be, and I'm always really reticent to documenting it because as soon as, you know, it, you do, it becomes problematic. But essentially what it is is these four core processes, which is culture, research, strategy and tech. So culture, some of the activities always start with working with custodians, knowing whose country you're on and how do you develop a relationship, a deep relationship with that country you're working with. What's the you know what are the ways of mapping it and how do you um, how do you know it? Then it's um, developing up a rich tap uh, knowledge base of those of those cultural practices and protocols and rites and rituals that come from that country that clan group and how those different the different community members you're you're working with can support that process. That then helps us to inform the research components, so all the traditional knowledges, like, and that other associated researchers that can, can can support that piece, which then informs the strategy. So how we design out the solution, and we do all sorts of various different use all sorts of different techniques, like futuring and um, interaction design, and all sorts of different modalities are used to then. Finally, only once we've gone through that quite um, intense process, we get to the what are the right technologies for the context? What is the cultural foundations that we've established to develop the conceptual framework and the creative strategic design interventions that then can inform the right technologies for the context? And so in that, for this project, it was um, it was. A, predominantly a sound experience yet it is there is a massive dome that has uh, thousands of led lights programmed inside the dome to help you navigate where the stars are but pre predominantly there's different sound technologies that um, like bone conducing technologies that and a variety of other different couple of other different different things that help channel these different stories sounds and experiences through you to connect to these different elements. So the dreaming stories, the soundscapes, and then the other contemporary stories. So that's more on the art spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've done projects like with, um, you know, on a precinct level. So we've done quite a few of those where we're designing entire precincts where often there'll be a train station at the heart of it, there'll be, there's a public domain element, there's a retail strategy, there's a, often there's um, residential, private and social sometimes um, and otherwise. So these big complexes, these big precincts need to be designed. And so we often are working on those pre large projects from the early conception part where we think about what is the origins of this place. So a recent example, we've been working on a project a master plan for Macquarie Park, which is Wollamadagal country. So that clan group, uh, the Wollamadagal is the um, is the people of the black snapper fish. And so the the two core dreamings are the whale, uh, sorry, the the eel and the black snapper. And they hold they kind of are the, the main boundary lines for that particular um, clan group and so we designed a whole different array of strategies for how the 
the didactic cultural practices can inform the different strategies for that entire um, master plan. So um, a fine grain network. So how does the transport network work? How do we design that around the origins of the how the river, the network of the riverways was used? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different examples I can give you on that, but that's I guess the sort of the the two ends of the spectrum of how we work in these different projects and how that methodology, country-centered design, is and it enables us the I guess the, a process that ensures that we're always developing a really um, strong integrity within the cultural foundations for the conceptual framing strategic design and then the technology intervention that's so interesting angie um and as you're speaking i'm just thinking everything you've said sounds like you know you'd never hear it from a google exec you know or an apple exec uh and that you know something like you know or, you know obviously <laughs> sadly um but that you know we, we've been interested in machine listening as you know, it's sort of embedding itself into our homes and our and our cities and uh, and so on. And part of the conceit of it is, you know, a kind of placelessness that it can just be rolled out anywhere, and that one home is the same as another, and all sorts of things happen. Then, you know, because you don't design for accent or language, and you're certainly not designing for country when you design for something like Alexa. Yeah, I just wondered if I don't know how I don't know how I don't know what would be a way in to comment on that um, because it just seems like a complete that the, the two approaches are completely anathema. That you know, the big tech's business model is because it's kind of colonial or imperial is precisely not interested in those questions that you've been talking about but but yet when you speak you sound you you speak very optimistically about technology and you talk about your uncle being a futurist and so on and and I wondered if you could comment on how to hold those different things together the kind of the placelessness or countrylessness of of so much big tech thinking and what what interests you well I think you you bang on I mean what you're highlighting as well is the this um, the normative language that comes with bodiless, stateless knowledge that drives these, um, I guess, the this imperial technology drive. You know the yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I think that the yeah. I'm really optimistic. I think that there's what's what's really apparent to me is that there's so many different organizations right now like we're seeing within covid crumbling because they're they're not sustainable the actual systems themselves the business models that they operate within are completely unsustainable and they and they're and they're really suffering and now's the time to let them crumble i say i mean there's you know it's really it's tricky it's a pretty hard line because of course there's people's lives that, that are entwined within those big systems. But um, what's, I think what's the, at the heart of the, the unsustainability of those systems, whether it be um, a corporate organisation or a technology platform or, or something else, is how devoid of culture that they are and, and the cultural 
protocols that shape their identity and shape who they how they operate and the the and I mean they're not devoid of culture they're just the culture within them is really toxic <laughs> and so that's why I think you know a lot of these these large entities or systems and or systems are failing because there's no integrity that's holding them together there's so I know that's really kind of that might be a little bit esoteric but um yeah that's what I think is different to the work that we do is that we're and I don't want to sound really earnest but that's that's what I know has sustained our people and how this country has nurtured us for so many thousands of generations is because of our culture. It's the culture and it's those protocols within our, within our law and within country that has sustained us. And so that, those are the protocols that inform everything, how we have designed these technologies over thousands of years like the boomerang fish traps spinifex resin into the world's you know first thermoplastic you know there's so many different examples of those different technologies that have been designed with such that are absolutely in balance and in harmony and have a a symbiotic relationship with with country you know, so there's this, you, you don't ever take more than what you can, what you need, but there are times that there are, there are needs for, there are reasons to take more. And so there are different protocols around that. Yeah. So the, I mean, the actual concept that a lot of environmentalists have, have supported over time doesn't, doesn't really align with Indigenous ways of being and thinking and knowing and seeing and doing. We don't lock country up as this thing that needs protecting. There's a, it's far deeper and far more complex than that. And so, you know, we work with it. It gives us as much as we, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a relationship. So it's the same thing with technology, you know, and I think, you know, you talked about something earlier about um, how do we develop meaningful relationships with technology and in particular when thinking about machine listening you know my uncle once said to me that you know we've got to be really careful about the types of um, AI that we're developing because we're you know we're potentially going to be creating another enslaved race because you know if you think about the um, AI as a you know a lot of a lot of Indigenous peoples actually do believe that there is sentience within within maybe deep learning and general AI. You know, there's <laughs> it can be that can be you know debated for a while, but um, but I do believe that there's that we're heading down a road where there there is the capacity for these technologies to have a different life force, and so then therefore the question needs to be asked like what. What are we creating? If we are creating another life, another life force, then we've got to be really mindful about, you know, the the I guess the, the ethics around, you know, those different types of technologies and their role and their place and how we as humans relate to them. Um, thanks, Angie, um, 
for those thoughts. Um, one of the essays that you mentioned when we chatted on the phone last week, um, the um, making kin with the machines was was really um, stimulating to, to to read that and to to kind of go d- deeper into those questions of um, human machine interrelations and the sort of ethical imp- implications of that. I'm aware we've just got a few minutes left, and so I wanted to uh, you know ask a kind of a more speculative um, kind of question about listening technologies. And, you know, if you were to sort of um, sit down and think about listening technologies or, or indeed, you know, Aboriginal technologies of listening that have a a rich set of cultural protocols already existing, but thinking about technologies of listening through that prism of country-centred design, you know, what, what would those technologies ideally do? What, what would they produce? Like how might they be used? And I think that's a very big question, but um, fr- from our perspective, if we could get you to think that through, then it would be a really am- amazing contribution to this project and, and something that, you know, w- would be really special. So have you ever heard of the message stick? A, a little bit, but uh, yeah, could, could, could you... Uh, so the message stick is often um, it's a it's a stick and it's got lots of different uh, symbols carved within it and it's used as a as a communication tool. So it's um, it's embodied knowledge within the stick. But the and so that it's often you know it was used for various different communication reasons. But um. But the the message stick is also used as a as a way of of holding space as well. So when in a yarning circle, there are different ways you can facilitate and hold the yarning circle. Or, and those protocols are, are really important for for establishing, I guess, a, um, deep listening. So so in in those cultural practices. There are there are design opportunities for different emerging technologies. So if we look at the benefits of you know what comes from what comes out of the of a yarning circle, they're amazing with that when they're facilitated really, really well. And what they enable is for people to speak deeply. Um, in ways that I've never really seen before, actually. But there's also another element that goes with that yarning circle that what we, what we do is we teach people how to make string for, for weaving. And so there's something in the act of actually doing something with your fingers, like knitting, or there's you know, many different things you can do. That very act of using your hands while in a, yarn, while in a circle sharing is kind of creates a, a different way that you can open open up and so all of these cultural practices can help us to think about what are the what are the different ways that we can think about the design the concept the intent and the the need and the the conception and design of these new um, listening technologies I, I think that there's incredible opportunities to to embrace AI for those different reasons, but also you know to we need to also really critically think about well how what form of AI you know there's this assumption that it's machine learning or deep learning or general AI and 
and that's pretty much you know those are that's what we that's what we have and yeah it's currently what we have but it's not to say that there's you know we should start thinking about what as Indigenous peoples, and this is what this whole work is really about, and the Indigenous protocols and artificial intelligence work is, what is the AI that for that we want to design for the future, and how what are the protocols that embody it, and what are the ways we understand, what are the protocols that inform the way we we caretake for knowledge, and how are they being replicated within a synthetic environment and for and how do we how uh, you know what are we saying yes to when we're allowing that knowledge to become data in the indigenous protocols artificial intelligence um paper is, is is amazing um it's really an incredible resource there was a um quote i think dr noelani arista that re really um stood out where she said um the key to, will be to ensure that the intellectual architecture preserved orally and textually by our ancestors helped shape the computational architecture of, of our digital technologies. And I thought that, you know, maybe she, she was hint, hinting at, um, you know, like language and cultural preservation that could be um, enabled by AI. And in fact, one of the people we spoke to at Mozilla, who's working at, at, um, at Mozilla in, in um, voice, recognition um, pointed to this as a specific use that um, voice assistants might be able to assist in language preservation and conservation. Sort of, do you have a sense of what the kind of opportunities and sort of um, challenges, obstacles yeah. might be for a project like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think like, on one hand, I think it's so important because, you know, coming from Tasmania, we had all of our languages were decimated. And so right now there's a language revitalization program happening, piecing together the nine different languages into one, one dialect. And it's not perfect. It's not, you know, we've only got journals to go from. And so imagine if there was a different um, archive. It would be incredible. However, uh, what's really important is the protocols that underpin knowledge transmission in the first place. So it's cultural practices and protocols that inform how you, you know, when you're ready for that knowledge is super important. So, I mean, it's kind of different with language when you're learning it again as a second, not as your mother tongue, but as a second language. In that scenario, I think, yes, we should, we just need to preserve our languages, but we also need to, it's a living culture. So we need to be practicing them. Um, so it's not, so it's the pres preservation is always a bit sticky for me. You know, it's um, when you have a living culture, it's about the actual act of it. It's the practicing of. And so technology right now often is about um, cultural preservation or protection instead of cultural practice. So I think, you know, that's the one of the key differences with the book that we wrote, Decolonising the Digital Technology as Cultural Practice. Once again, it's, you know, it's not the same agenda of um, access participation, preservation, all of that. It's very, it's a very different agenda. And it's not like I'm poo-pooing the whole, like all of it, but it's, but we need to, we need to invest in another agenda equally as much. 
which is about agency and autonomy and the systemic change that can be created by, by developing different types of systems and technologies that come from those the systems that are inherent to this country and the cult and you know the cultural practices that are part of those so the actual designing and developing of those technologies becomes part of the culture thanks so much This recording was produced by Mara Schwitvega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au